Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. The question has been brought, what text is Amy going to do today? So, uh, yeah, the Torah reading for Chol HaMoed Sukkot. So Chol HaMoed just means it's not Yom Tov. It's not the actual holiday where we desist from work and engaging in regular life. When it's Chol HaMoed. Holy moly. Chol HaMoed Sukkot. Sukkot is like Chol HaMoed Pesach. Um, So there's a special Torah reading because because every Sukkot is going to contain a Shabbat. Shabbat is given its own reading on Chol HaMoed Sukkot. So we are not finishing Deuteronomy today. Our lectionary is interrupted by the reading for Sukkot because this is during the festival of Sukkot. We are still in the festival of Sukkot. So uh, the reading for, for Chol HaMoed Sukkot is Exodus 33. Um, and I've been studying with you all for 11 years now. So we have studied Exodus 33. Like, 33 times, um, because it's like three times a year that we look at that text. It is one of my favorite pieces of Torah. I love that piece of Torah. I really do. I just was like, I can't. I just can't. I can't. So what does that mean? That usually means it's like, ugh, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling, you know. So then I thought, well, what, what if you don't do that? You got to do something. What are you going to do? So I thought, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about Sukkot, just a tiny bit, because I went down the rabbit hole um trying to figure out what to teach y'all so i started looking at books like pagan rites in judaism uh looking at the roots of sukkot and like i mean i don't know what happened but i went deep deep down the rabbit hole so i do want to share a few thoughts on sukkot and then um and then because i hear you i know you think i don't i know you think i ignore you but i hear you when you say things like how come we don't the prophets how come it's okay. So we are going to look at another text associated with Sukkot, which is Ecclesiastes. We never read Ecclesiastes. We never read Kohelet, right? And so um, I thought I would take care of some of that concern that we never get outside the five books by uh, reading the scroll, a little bit of the scroll of Ecclesiastes. So I'll tell you a little bit more about what that is. Um, and Ecclesiastes is the scroll assigned to Sukkot, the same way that the scroll of Esther is assigned to Purim, right? And the same way um, we have other scrolls, associate, all five scrolls are associated with a holiday. The scroll of Ecclesiastes is, uh, is ascribed to Sukkot. So we'll talk a little bit about that text. We'll look at some of that text so that you're at least familiar with it. Uh, and can know a little bit more about what it is, what it says, what it does. And then I'll take your thoughts on what you think the connection is between that and Sukkot. Okay, that's our agenda for the morning. It's a big agenda. So I'm going to talk fast. All right. So obviously we know what Sukkot is. Duh, right? So I'm not going to give you Sukkot 101. That's not what I want to do. What I want to do is talk a little bit more about some of the nuances of Sukkot that other people don't address. So one thing is that in the Torah, in the Bible, we see that um, the first place we really see anything about Sukkot is Chag Ha'asif. 
So the festival of ingathering. Now, everybody thinks they know what that means. I want my students to know that's not true. There's a huge argument in the scholarly literature about what does that mean, the ingathering. Some people want to argue, well, duh, it's the harvest. It's the fall harvest. This obviously was an agricultural festival. Obviously, we're talking about the harvest. But first of all, so many things are coming to fruition in Israel at this time that it's which harvest. So if you're talking about the end of the harvest, the end of which harvest? So that's one of the arguments. Are we talking about olive trees? Are we talking about grain? What, what, what harvest are we talking about? There's no date given for Chag Ha'asif, the festival of ingathering. It's like when you have gathered your stuff, then you're going to have this holiday. So then the other thing becomes the question, yeah, Barry, dates, right? Meaning the fruit dates, right? So there are many species that come to fruition at the end of summer in Israel, which this is, right, the end of summer, kind of like it is here in California. It's not, you know, the leaves are not turning here, people, right? We're, I still go to the pool on Sunday afternoon, right? Like it's, it's warm. It's the end of summer. So, um, so it was the same timing in Israel. Obviously, we're on the lunar calendar. It's the same time in Israel as it is here. So, so it is this end of summer, be very beginning of fall. So what is ripening? What's being harvested? Not only is that the argument, but because no date is given, it means people celebrated the Chag at different times, depending on the year, the conditions of the weather, it, that would affect how quickly things ripened and how quickly the harvest would be done. So there was no set date for Sukkot. It was really tied to harvesting. Now, the second argument is about, are you talking about bringing the fruit or the grain in from the fields? Or are you talking about bringing it in from the threshing floor? And there's a huge argument about that, that it doesn't mean when the food comes in from the field, it means when the food comes back into the farmer's home as a final product that would then be used by the farmer and, and or sold so that now what, what, what you're celebrating is your profit, right? What's going to sustain your family and or what you're going to sell because that's your livelihood if you're a farmer and you're, you sell your surplus. So, so none of that happens until you're, you're, stocks are turned into bags of grain, right? Or your olives are turned into oil or your grapes are turned into wine. So, so that's some of the argument about what was this festival even about? Was it about the end of a particular harvest? Was it the end of all of the harvesting a farmer would do? Or was it the end of the work that peasants would do meaning threshing all of that stuff, like everything's done and everyone gets a break now and let's have Chag Asif, the festival of ingathering because we're done with work for the year, right? We're done through the winter, nothing grows. Three seasons in Israel, things grow, they don't grow in the winter. Therefore, um, it, was the, it was the season where everyone was off and it was, it, your, your work was done for the year and, and the farmer could celebrate the farmer's wealth assuming the farmer did well. <coughs> okay, so that's number one. We don't really know the origins of the holiday other than it has something to do with harvesting in the fall. 
Now, some people want to say this is tied to Canaanite practice. So Mesopotamian, Canaanite, pagan harvesting rituals. And that the Sukkot that we are told we are supposed to dwell in, because there's only a few commandments about this festival. One is that we dwell in the Sukkah for a week. People are going to tell you they know what a Sukkah is. They don't know what a Sukkah is. We don't know where this comes from. We think it comes from harvesting, but we're not sure what the Sukkot were. We don't know if it was a place where the produce was kept and people slept there to guard it. Arab uh, agrarian folks still do this. Um, that they sleep because the, because you have migrant workers coming, you have peasants coming from all over to, for day laboring for the harvesting in the field. Are the Sukkot there for the people to sleep in as their shelter? Or are they sleeping in the Sukkah to guard the harvest of the field until it's all done and that harvest gets moved right to somewhere else where it's secure and safe? We don't know. Some people want to argue the origin of the Sukkah is because it was a pilgrimage festival. Jerusalem would not have had room for all of the Israelites who were making a pilgrimage. There would not have been space for all of those Israelites to stay in hotels in Jerusalem. Therefore, they would have stayed in temporary dwelling places. And that that later becomes an actual symbol of the festival itself are the temporary structures built by pilgrims. The reason this doesn't work for me, and I didn't even need to wait for the, for the author to raise the objection, was, well, you also have pilgrimage festivals on Pesach and Shavuot. So why would temporary dwellings for pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, because it was crowded, why would that have been the case with Sukkot and not with Pesach or Shavuot. So that one already for me was like, meh, I don't know. That's a stretch. But let's say even partially that might be true, that Sukkot in particular was more popular. And so it had more of these huts. We have no indication that people would have camped during a pilgrimage festival. There's no room in the Hilton that they would have pitched a Sukkah. We have every reason to believe they would have pitched an ohel. They would have pitched a tent. Um, and so that we don't have any indication that the Sukkah was actually, um, you know, a, a temporary kind of dwelling, unless it was already very early on somehow tied to an observance of the festival, right? That these pilgrims actually did build Sukkot and stay in Sukkot because it was already a component of the festival. If that's true, it originates for some other reason and becomes the pilgrim's temporary home in Jerusalem as part of the, the ritual and the rite of Sukkot. My guy and pagan rites in Judaism um, suggests, and my, my psychiatry folks are going to love this, that, um, that it, and my sociologists, uh, that it was, um, it's actually a remnant of the puberty rites that would have happened to young men in tribes, that they would have been sent away from the village, particularly away from women, away from mothers. They would have been sent with men, initiated men, to a place outside of the, 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 the home, right? Outside the village where 
village life happens to go to that numinous place, that place, that liminal place, right, between childhood and adulthood. We call this torture bar mitzvah, but that's another ritual. Um, so the, the boys are taken away and out of the safety of their homes. They're taken out of the regularity of their lives. They are, they spend time in uh, the wilderness, in these temporary uh, initiation huts. Um, the, the theory is, if you look at, you know, other, um, uh, other cultures, you can see that it happens for months. So this is an ordeal. And I mean that in the ritual sense, right? The, the technical sense in anthropology of an ordeal so that they are taken out of the comfort and safety of their routines, taken out of the bosom of their family. They are alone. They are terrified on purpose. Um, they often, these things were made in some cultures to look like the belly of a beast um, so that they've been swallowed by the monster. Uh, and, they, and they are, and they go through initiation rites that ends with them being full members of the tribe, uh, being initiates right into the tribe. That could have been a harvest fertility related set of things. Um, often circumcision was part of the fertility rights for adolescent, for pubescent males. Judaism, the Israelite people moved it back to day eight. Day eight is the first day you can circumcise when factor K, the clotting factor, kicks in with a baby. So it's the first day you can circumcise without killing the infant. But it's moved from puberty back. So so some theories that the sukkah is like a remnant. So that's why it has schach. It has to have a roof that is you can see through. And it has to be, it has to be a temporary structure. Right. And we know that from Jewish law, it has to be temporary. It has to have a thatched roof that you can see through and that the rain can come in through. According to halacha, if it rains and it doesn't spoil your soup in the sukkah, your sukkah is not kosher. If the sukkah can't be blown over by a strong wind, your sukkah is not kosher. So so the temporary aspect is very important. And there are people who believe the thatching mimics the uh, the foliage of the woods, right, of the wilderness away from city life. Okay, that's what I got for you. So next time somebody tells you they know all about where Sukkot comes from, you can say, really? Tell me more about that. <coughs> okay, so so anyway, that so we have the Sukkah, we have this festival, we have at the end of that, uh, Shmini Atzeret, an eighth day of tarrying, of lingering, for the rabbis, this is God not wanting to let the people go. That God loves hanging out with us in the sukkah, and God doesn't want to let us go, and so God wants an extra day. We're not given the reason for the tarrying. That's the rabbinic imagination, that God loves us. God loves being in the honey room, honeymoon suite with us and doesn't want to leave and doesn't want us to leave and get dressed and go back to work. So we have this extra eighth day. Um, we also celebrate Simchat Torah on that day. Uh, Reform Jews, uh, many of them, and Reconstructionist Jews and Jews in Israel do not celebrate eight days of a festival. We celebrate seven days. Remember, a day is added to outside of the land of Israel because we couldn't be sure when the new moon was witnessed and declared by the court. And the the um, months were set by the court. They don't happen on their own. 
right? The court has to declare the new moon and they have to be witnesses and the court makes it legal that the month has begun. The further you get from Israel and then there's all stuff about people lighting fire, signal fires that were to throw the Jews off so that they would disunite the Jews about who was starting holidays when, whatever the, whatever the reason, another day was added. We don't do that anymore. Um, Kaplan and his students felt like, you know, we have calendars now. We know when the new moon is happening. We don't need a court and we don't need to pad it. We know when the new moon is. And thank you very much. We'll just observe it on that new moon of this month of Chag HaAsif. So um, so we're getting ready to celebrate Simchas Torah. Uh, as many of you know, that's when we choose to end um, Torah and begin again. And for those who read on an annual cycle, so they finish the entire Torah from Genesis through Deuteronomy. For those of us who read on a triennial cycle, we also have moved from Genesis through Deuteronomy, just reading one third of the portion each week rather than trying to do the whole thing. And as you all know, sometimes we don't get past the third sentence, right? So like, it'd be really hard to do the whole Parsha. But um, but uh, I almost did today's class on that whole tradition of who had an annual cycle and who had a triennial cycle. So uh, maybe you'll see that that she or that discussion uh, at Simchas Torah next Friday. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, so that's where we're at right now. So, so the the historical layer that gets added onto this that we see as a late addition uh, is this idea that the um, the Israelites were told to dwell in Sukkot because they dwelt in Sukkot during the Exodus. <clears throat> Nowhere do we have it that they dwelled in Sukkot during the Exodus. First of all, where are you going to get thatching? Where are you going to get schach in the desert, right? In the wilderness. Even if it's not desert, desert, it's still like schach is all about the woods, right? It's about away from civilization, which certainly the wilderness was, but you're not going to have a bunch of like trees, you know, and branches and stuff to put on top of all of the Israelites' huts. So we have no indication that that's true. It becomes part of how to um, give another level of meaning to the holiday once probably most Israelites were urban. So once you're urban and you don't have um, and you don't have the connection really back to the agrarian origins of the festival. Barry, we don't know. We think it was not a big the big deal. It was like in second temple it was a much bigger deal but we but we think it goes back really really far this this idea of Chag Asif. it goes back hachag the holiday the festival it possibly was the original festival so if it's really old if it's canaanite then then the earliest israelites would have been celebrating this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years as canaanites right as as people who belong to the mesopotamian region so it could be really old. We don't know. What we do know is that this other layer gets added on that the Sukkot are actually a remembrance of traveling through the desert. It really makes more sense to tie that to Pesach than it does to to Sukkot, but we bought it. So there you go. Um, And so so then the rabbinic imagination is that, that this is a time of longing to go back to when we understood that we were dependent only on God 
And that is why the sukkah is flimsy and temporary, because we are to remember that our dependence is on God and not on the work of our own hands. And we think we're such big shots and we control so much when we don't actually control so much. All right. That's my intro to why Ecclesiastes might be read on Sukkot. We're not sure. What we know is that there was a big fight about whether or not Ecclesiastes should be in the canon. Once they were setting the canon, should Ecclesiastes be included in the canon? There was a big fight. So Song of Songs, there was a big fight about that because it was erotic, very, very graphic, erotic love poetry that a lot of the rabbis were like, uh, don't think so. This is not sacred literature. But enough of a camp convinced everybody that it, it in fact was, that it in fact was a metaphor for the love between God and Israel, God's fruit hanging above Israel's face. Okay, just saying. So, okay, so enough people bought that, that, that Song of Songs is in, which I love because it's gorgeous. And I love that we have sexy poetry as part of our holy scriptures. I love that. Um, Ecclesiastes was borderline heresy for some folks. Some folks want to see Hellenizing influences in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a transliteration of the Greek. The Hebrew is Kohelet. And you know this word from Kehilat Yisrael, right? A kahal is an assembly, a gathering of people. So the kahal, so someone who is, there's arguments about what ver, what noun form this is. It's a feminine noun. There's a whole lot of arguing about whether it's active or passive. I'm not going to bore you with all that. Barry might be inter- interested, but it's like even over, way over my head. Um, but there's a lot of arguing about where this word actually, what it actually means, but we know it means something about someone who addresses an assembly. If someone who's addressing the kahal, right? In this sense, the term is kohelet, the one addressing the kahal. So in that, who addresses a kahal? Who addresses an assembly? Well, if you're an official, obviously, if you're a senator, if you're a congressperson, if you're right a mayor, then you understand what that means, addressing the kahal. If it's just in general, and at the time we're looking at, we're looking at anywhere from 450 to 180 BCE. 450 to at the latest 180, because Ben Sirach in 180 quotes Ecclesiastes. So 180 is the latest date it can be. So 450 to 180, we don't know within there when it's written. But if you start looking at what's going on and what Israelites are exposed to in terms of the schools of thought, one of them is Greek thought. And the, the, uh, Socratic method, right? Like when you start talking about who's addressing a kahal, it's the teacher. It's the instructor. It's the philosopher, which were the same things back then, right? The philosopher, teacher, poet, you know, that whole, just think Greek, you know, stuff and you get what I mean. So some people want to argue that's exactly what Kohelet is, someone who is a philosopher who was addressing uh, the assembly of meaning people who are coming to be, um, Educated. All right. So Ecclesiastes was borderline heresy. So I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to show you Kohelet. 
And then I want you to think about a couple of things. Why might this have been assigned to Sukkot as the reading, you know, for Sukkot, the Megillah associated with Sukkot? And why, why, why is this in here in the canon? What's the argument for keeping it in? And can you see why it might have been problematic? Okay. So here's the outline of Ecclesiastes as scholars are arguing about what the breakdown and outline is. So this is one mm-hmm. version is that you have the title of the poem in the actual text, which is chapter one, verse one. You have the poem, which is verses two through 11 of chapter one. Kohelet talks about life, chapter one through chapter six to the middle of chapter six. Kohelet's conclusions about life. 610 through 116, the concluding poem 117 through 128, and the epilogue verses 9 through 14 of chapter 12. We're not going to read all of this, but you are free to read it on your own. Um, on Safaria, you, all you have to do is go to Safaria, and, um, and all of our texts are there, but hopefully you have a Bible at home and can open that and read Ecclesiastes anytime you like, but we're just going to get a taste uh, of it. You'll know some of these things uh, because they've become, you know, part of popular culture. All right. So Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one, some people see this as the title. Elena Allen, would you please read for us? I'm the words of Cola. Is that where we're starting? Yeah. Kohela. Okay. The words of Kohala, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Utter futility, said Kohala, utter futility. All is futile. What real value is there for a man in all the gains he makes beneath the sun? One generation goes, another comes, but the earth remains the same forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and glides back to where it rises. Southward blowing, turning northward, ever turning blows the wind, on its rounds the wind returns. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place from which they flow, the streams flow back again. All such things are wearisome, no man can ever state them. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear enough of hearing. Only that shall happen which has happened. Only that occur which has occurred. There's nothing new beneath the sun. Sometimes there is a phenomenon of which they say, look, this one is new. It occurred long since in ages that went by before us. The earlier ones are not remembered. So too those that will occur later will no more be remembered than those who that will occur at the very end. Kohala was the king of Jerusalem over Israel. I set my mind to study and to probe with wisdom all that happens under the sun and unhappy business that which God gave men to be concerned with. I observe all the happening, whoops, it moved. I observed all the happening beneath the sun. I found that all is futile and pursuit of wind, a twisted thing that cannot be made straight, a lack that cannot be made good. I said to myself, here I have grown richer and wiser than any that ruled before me over Jerusalem, and my mind has zealously aborted wisdom and learning. 
And so I set my mind to appraise wisdom and to appraise madness and folly. And I learned that that too was pursuit of wind. For as wisdom grows, vexation grows. To increase learning is to increase heartache. I'm going to jump, Elena. I'm going to jump to... This is beautiful. (laughs) Okay. All right, here we go. Ready? Keep going. There is an evil I have observed under the sun, and I gave it one for... I gave... And grave one it is for man that God sometimes grants a man riches and property and wealth so that he does not want for anything his appetite may crave. But God does not permit him to enjoy it. Instead, a stranger will enjoy it. That is futility and grievous ill. Even as a man should beget a hundred children and live many years, no matter how many the days of his years may come to, if his gullet is not sated, through his wealth, I say the stillbirth, though it was not even accorded a burial, is more fortunate than he. Though it comes into futility and departs into darkness, and its very name is covered with darkness. Though it never has seen or experienced the sun, it is better off than the... Than he? Yes, even if the others lived a thousand years twice over, but never had his fulfill of enjoyment. For are not both of them bound for the same place? All of man's earnings is for the sake of his mouth, yet his gullet is not sated. What advantage then has the wise man over the fool? What advantage has the pauper who knows how to get on in life? It is the feasting of the eye. It is the feasting of the eyes more important than the pursuit of desire. That too is futility and pursuit of wind. Whatever happens, it was designated long ago and it was known that it would happen. For as for man, he cannot contend with what is stronger than he. Often much talk means much futility. How does it benefit a man? Who can possibly know what is best for a man to do in life, the few days of his fleeting life? Or who can tell him what the future holds for him under the sun? A good name is better than fragrant oil, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for that is the end of every man, and a living one should take it to heart. Vexation is better than revelry, for though the face be sad, the heart may be glad. (coughs) Wise men are drawn to a house of mourning and fools to a house of merrymaking. It is better to listen to a wise man's reproof than to listen to the praise of fools. For the the levity of the fool is like the crackling of nettles under a kettle, but that too is illusory. For cheating may rob the wise men of reason and destroy the prudence of the cautious. The end of a matter is better than the beginning of it, better than a patient spirit, than a haughty spirit. Don't let your spirit be quickly vexed, for vexation abides in the breasts of fools. All right, I'm going to jump again. I'm going to jump again um, to the to the end for a reason. Is All this right. why we don't read the prophets? <laughs> I'm going to jump to the end because I want to, I want to 
I, the end is its own thing. There's a there's a there's a fight about the end. So, but so, but I want to give you a taste of it so that you know what the argument is. Okay, okay go ahead. So appreciate your vigor in the days of your youth before those days of sorrow come and those years arrive of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before sun and light and moon and stars grow dark and the clouds come back again after the rain, when the guards of the house become shaky and the men of valor are bent and the maids that grind groan, few are idle and the ladies that appear through the windows grow dim and the doors to the street are shut with the noise of the handmill growing fainter and the song of the bird growing feebler and the strains of music dying down. When one is afraid of heights and there is terror on the road, for the almond tree may blossom, the grasshopper be burdened, and the caper bush be bud, may bud again. But man sets out for his eternal abode with, with mourners all around in the street. Before the silver cord snaps and the golden bowl crashes, the gar, gar, jar is shattered at the spring and the jug is smashed at the cistern. And the dust returns to the ground as it was and the... Life breath returns to God who bestowed it. Utter futility, said, said Kohala. All is futile. A further word, because Kohala was a sage, he continued to instruct the people. He listened to and tested the soundness of many maxims. Kohala sought to discover useful sayings and recorded genuinely truthful sayings. The sayings of the wise were like goads, like nails fixed in prodding sticks. They were given by one shepherd. The further word, against them my son be warned. The making of many books is without limit, and much study is a wearying of flesh. The sum of the matter, when all is said and done, revere God and observe his commandments. For this applies to all mankind, that God will carry every creature to account for everything unknown, be it good or bad. The sum of the matter when all is said and done, revere God and observe his commandments. For this applies to all mankind. Okay. Um, the reason I had us read the end is because one, a lot of people agree that the end is tacked on. The oh. end is orthodoxy that made the rest of it palatable enough to go into the canon. But only because of that last chunk did it make it in, right? That, that it got added, from, you know, as like orthodoxy that, you know, that it's like, cause it's heresy. Like if you read a lot of what we just read, what is it saying? Hevel, everything is Hevel. Hevel comes from breath, from vapor, steam. Like, so you can see vapor, but what happens when you go to touch vapor, right? So that's what Hevel means. It gets translated as vanity, futility. I'm not saying those translations are wrong. I'm saying it, it comes from this idea of steam or, um, or vapor or breath. Right. So um, meaning meaning in sort of uh, not tangible, but also like not permanent. 
right? It, you know, it, it's something that dissipates, um, which is Kohelet's point. And you hear it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. So Barry just suggested that Kohelet is a vaccine against heresy. Okay. Some people want to say Kohelet is the epitome of heresy. Other people want to argue, no, it's the perfect reading for Sukkot. All right. Talk to me, people. Barry, how is it a vaccine? Well, uh, in the sukkah, you bring uh, you bring in four symbols. Uh, you bring in the etrog, you bring in love, and you bring in all these four uh, plants uh, into the sukkah, which represent different parts of uh, our civilization, different people, and and some of them are you know are up to no good, are heretics. But we still uh, join them all up together and pray for all of them and bring them all under one sukkah. So we, have, we need to have this one heretical book and one very erotic book so that everyone would feel at home. And, and after everyone is at home, let's start arguing. All right. So what I, I'm just, I just want to make a friendly amendment to your comment. Maybe it's not that... Kohelet is a vaccine against heresy. It's that Kohelet allows us to bring the heretic into the tent. Better the heretic, whatever it is, peeing outside the tent than outside the tent into the, like better the heretic stays at home and does their heresy at home, right? You know, where we can at least, where they still belong to the enterprise. They don't, if we make them define themselves as heretics and they're not welcome then then they are working against the project whereas what i hear you saying is if we have a text that they recognize as oh i can maybe be part of this because that resonates with me that keeps them in the in the project yeah exactly love that okay and the lover is gonna need song of songs right you know the, the person who's not an intellectual the person who not that you can't be a lover and be an intellectual. I'm not suggesting that. But, right, you know, the person who's really anchored in another way of experiencing the world and relationships is going to stay because the Song of Songs is there. Okay. Bert and then Rita. Uh, this seems to me very relevant for Sukkot. If you connect it to the theme of the fragility of life. I mean, the Sukkah has to be fragile, as you mentioned. And one of the ideas is it is to teach us that life and the physicality of life is fragile. We're supposed to have joy inside, but we have to also know it can blow down at any point. Or like you said, it can rain on your soup. And that seems to be the the rather uh, negative take on Kohelet. So the, well, although what you just said was kind of a positive take on Kohelet, right? That it, it reminds us the same way the Sukkah does and the practice of living out in a flimsy temporary place where the weather can be changeable at this time of year, that, that the positive aspect of that is remember to enjoy this harvest and enjoy what you have, enjoy this life because it's all fleeting. And it says the answer, however, is to connect to God. Says the end. Yes, says the end. There's another thing we didn't read that I love in uh, Kohelet that says, don't be too good. 
Right. Don't try to be too good. Don't try to be too you. You're yeah. still going to die. Right. You're still headed for the grave. So not well, that's encouraging. You want to be such a good person? Terrific. You're still going to die. Thank you. That made my day. <laughs> I was just being coherent for a moment. Rita. <laughs> I was just thinking when you said bring in the heretic and include, try to bring them in and include them in the group and the kahal, maybe the ingathering uh, commandment about Sukkot is could be interpreted as ingathering of people, not necessarily crops. So just like we have the Uchbitzin bringing in strangers to the Sukkah um, kind of meshes with what we read in Kohela. Nice. So this idea that the actual ingathering, the asif, what are we asifing? Um, and that, it, you know, don't read fruits, rather read the kahal, right? Read people. You know, that, that's what we're gathering in is actually people. It's lovely. And that means lots of different kinds of people. Um, and then you better have something for everybody, right? All right. I hear Sarah has unmuted. Is that true? Yes. Please. What I'm hearing is a call to continuity. Say more, Sarah. You can't drop something like that and then not unpack it for us. Well, I just I tuned in a little late. But it seems to me all the verses, uh, some support, good, comfort, and others bring in um, difficulty and not good. But the end is to support continuity. So the continuity of what, Sarah? Of our people. Okay. Okay. So that no matter what happens, good, bad, hard, easy, living, okay. dead, you know, that, that, that what counts is, is our passing from generation coming. to generation, that wisdom. Our coming together. Our coming together. Our kahaling. Our sifing. Great. You had another question, which is the, why there was the argument about including this. Yeah. What do y'all think about that? Well, I, I don't know what the argument is. Actually was, but if God keeps on saying Kitov, and when God makes the human being, God says, and that was very, very good. And here Kohelet is kind of saying, things are terrible, life is horrible, everything is going to end, there's no purpose to life, everything is futile. That would seem to be not in line with the optimistic part of the story in Genesis and elsewhere. So it's it's set kind of over and against what is supposed to be the fundamental understanding, which is life is good. Kitov, right? And the human beings created Tov Ma'od, right? It's really good. So this seems counter to that whole orientation to human life. And to, right, so if you were making the case, would you argue for or against including Kohelet in the canon, Linda? I would make the argument for meaning things we're talking about now, including people of all persuasions, if you think that getting to trying to get people together to have conversations, to to um, get to a point where we can all help each other rather than fight against each other has been very common and certainly in recent days. All right, but remember, we're reading that into Kohelet. We're we're reading that in. That that's not there in Kohelet. 
bring everybody together. Everybody has a place here. That is not there. We decided that that may be one of the reasons it, it could be a good thing to put it in. Do you know what I'm saying? But it, but the actual text, would you argue for that to be part of the holy collection of sacred Jewish literature or no? I still think yes. That, okay, so there you go. So this was the fight. This was the fight. Does it belong in the, it, it, you, you're sending a time capsule into space that's going to preserve the best of humanity, right? And just in the Jewish people's case, the best of, of what Judaism has to offer our people. It's wisdom literature. Do you include this or not? So that was the big fight. We know how the fight ended because we're sitting here reading it, right? But I, I don't know. I just, I, I can understand why this was an argument. I got it. I got to tell you. I would not I would not argue to include this. I would not argue to include you're going to wind up like a stillbirth. You're both heading to the same place. <laughs> don't get too full of yourself because you're right. I don't know that I would include this in the greatest of our works and the greatest of our philosophy. I accept the argument that maybe it's a way to keep folks who don't get with orthodoxy. And I don't mean orthodoxy as we understand it. I mean, orthodoxy and what it actually means, right? Everyone thinking the same way that you follow God's commandments, you follow God's laws, take chapter 12 off, take it like it originally was, right? There's nothing about following God's commandments. There's nothing about it's all ultimately going to be okay if you just live a life of righteousness. It's not there. So does that get included in the greatest hits? I can accept the argument that it might, it might keep some folks who are who are not thinking like the rest of the material wants you to think, I can understand that as an argument to keep it in so that those people feel included. I don't think that's why they put it in. Frankly, I think the reason it got in was because it was current thinking and the current style in Greece. That already the influence of the popular culture that Israelites were exposed to was already influencing the kind of thing that they thought was highbrow literature and philosophy and what was lowbrow. And you better believe God walking around in the garden was lowbrow, right? And and bringing a bunch of plagues. That is lowbrow. Socrates is highbrow. So when you want to talk about Ecclesiastes being up there with some of the Greek philosophers, that makes sense to me that it got in because that was du jour at the time of the argument about canonizing our texts. That was in fashion, right? Skeptics, this kind of exploring of, um, of the meaning of life and, and, and Kohelet's tone and tenor was very popular in those who were being exposed to early Hellenizing influences. Judith? It seems to me there's a great relationship between this portion and the part of Ecclesiastes that I love for every, for everything there is a season. And so it's a relative ebb and flow <laughs> and the accepting that for every, for every time there is a season, for everything there's a season. And this is one of them. For every thought there is a season. Yes. Uh, George has his hand up. I wonder if it could be uh, the pessimism could be interpreted as eat the cake, uh, eat the dessert first in your meal. And if the dessert is interpreted as uh, following God's rules in, in righteousness, 
whether, in fact, uh, that's a useful interpretation. So wait, I, I don't understand that last thing you said. Following oh. God's commandments, what? And righteousness. Eat the cake, eat the dessert first. And that what the dessert is, is being righteous. In other words, instead of being, you're so pessimistic that you should eat your, eat your dessert first. And if you define dessert as righteousness or God's rulings, uh, then it becomes more optimistic. So, right. But if I accept that chapter 12 was added on so that it got into the canon, then Ecclesiastes, the heart of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 through 11, do not say that dessert is following God's commandments. No, but, but it, it does say, gather ye rosebuds eat, while you Eat dessert you first because you're going to die. Right. So you That's might as well start with the chocolate chip cookies because you're going to die. And you could die right after dinner. <laughs> right? So I'm not, I'm not arguing with the wisdom of Kohelet. I don't want anyone to hear that. I don't think that's absolutely true. I'm just saying, is it part of the greatest hits? All right, Barry, you have your hand up. And then Barbara has her hand up. Um, suddenly, I'm thinking maybe uh, we're, we're really addressing here a person who says, okay, all these commandments, all these mitzvahs, why do I need all this? And, and, Kohelet comes and says, "Okay, what you what you want to what you really want to do? You want to you want to pursue? You want to make money? How much money is enough? Oh, you want to you want to go get with uh, women? How many are enough? So you, you're not going you're not going to be happy anyway. So <laughs> here's here's a few rituals and a few uh, um, um, things you could do, and that would pass time better." Because you're part of a community, you're you're part of a civilization. You're part when you're on your own. Nothing is ever enough, and and it's it struck me really a Buddhist message of life is suffering. So here are some um, um, mantras to to meditate to. And so, where are you finding the mantras? What mantras? What rituals? Um, talk about them. Kohalat has m- mantras inside, built in. Uh, everything has a uh, moment for time for everything. <laughs> it's uh, it's included in there. There's a mantra right in. All right, so you you see that that section as kind of guidance for how to live in a world where, you know what I mean? You're every yeah. you wind up dead no matter what. I, I was I, I was exposed to very few mantras in my life. But it seems very along the same lines of, of mantra ship. Okay. Barbara, then Mark. Okay. The one thing I was thinking about is something different. I was thinking about the relationship of the poetry between um, Song of Songs and Kohelet. It's when I when I see that poetry that it's there's a big similarity and I googled it as you were talking and I saw there are a lot of articles about that and Rabbi Amy what do you do you see what do you see in that in in the in the juxtaposition of Song of Songs and Kohelet yes um, I think I see that the that the folks who chose what was going into the canon wanted a couple of flavors in there that were not orthodoxy 
Um, Rabbi Akiva is the one who really argued for Song of Songs. It was his school oh. that argued for the inclusion of Song of Songs. I don't know how popular that was. Um, and I don't think it was the same people who argued to have Kohelet in and Song of Songs in. Um, I think probably there were different agendas by the schools who argued for each of those texts to be included. Um, I really think it's because it was what was popular. I really think that's why um, the Ecclesiastes text made it in is it was becoming very popular. Um, And so we want to be kept, if we want to be up with the times and we want to have our greatest hits, you better have the thing that makes us look sophisticated and like we know what we're doing and not talking about a God walking in a garden. That's ridiculous and embarrassing. So it was, you know, so it was like the temple ritual. It's all embarrassing. We have moved past that to this very high philosophical, right, you know, style. So that's my personal opinion about how it got in uh, and why it got in and what the agenda was, was to make us look good. And given the popular, you know, uh, Greek philosophical style. So that's just my own opinion um, after reading. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's fine. That's why we include modern readings and interpretive versions of things in our machzor. In our high holiday service, we did a prayer for COVID, right? You know, a, a poem written in the time of COVID. And th- so that psalm, right, it is, is a traditional model, but it's completely contemporary. And I see nothing wrong with that right, at, at all. Um, I just don't, on the basis of the content, I, I just don't, I don't buy it that it made it in as, you know, Jewish top 10 philosophical, whatever Mark. And then Sarah, you know, it seems, to, it seems to me that, uh, this is presented as a, uh, as a kind of philosophical proposition or series of propositions, but, um, it also, um, I think, can be usefully thought of in terms of an internal emotional dialectic uh, between uh, a, uh, a dialectic that is based on uh, a joy, on pleasure, on gratification, uh, and uh, an ability to, uh, in, to uh, indulge in that kind of pleasure without um, undue fear or anxiety, and that much of what um, is um, is contained in Kohelet is a kind of defense against the danger of pleasure, and that um, it uh, um, it is transmuted into a philosophical proposition. But um, in, as uh, I think the underlying emotional dialectic. <coughs> is something that uh, is seen in all kinds of orthodoxies, um, and uh, in particular, certain strains of Christianity are extremely ascetic and extremely afraid of uh, pleasure and, of course, ultimately sexual pleasure. And and a lot of people, Mark, um, really um, point to Kohelet to talk about Epicureanism, that, mm. that it's here that this is Epicureanism, right? To say, you're going to die, so you need to enjoy stuff while you're here. But only enjoying stuff, you know, gluttony is not going to cut it either. Because like like Barry said, like we've all said, you know, how many women is enough? How much money is enough? Uh, you know, a rich man, you know, like is not going to have any more, you know, ultimate satisfaction than a poor 
person, right? Um, but that this is really about the, the popular Epicurean approach to life um, that's very much uh, in line with Kohala, which is what you're saying, right? You know, that it's not afraid of pleasure. It affirms, you know, taking advantage of the pleasures that we have in this life, but also not thinking that that in itself is, you know, is, is going to be ultimately satisfactory because ultimately we all die. <laughs> you know, well, you know, I, think, I think that the, at least my, my interpretation of it, uh, and I, I don't claim that I have even thought much about it, uh, but it seems to me that um, there is um, a kind of uh, philosophical uh, uh, overlay that tr- tries to present exactly that position. Um, don't be too enthusiastic about your joys or pleasures because they're transitory and there will be suffering, there will be loss, there will be privation. Um, but um, I think that uh, the underlying emotional tenor of it is a kind of inveighing against the enjoyment uh, uh, itself um, and that there is then a kind of rationalization of that by saying that enjoyment is transitory, it's temporary. Um, and I think that in that way, it really is a kind of invocation of asceticism. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's one strain of it. I think there's also a, a, a very narcissistic strain that says, in essence, other people will enjoy what you create, so why bother to create it? if you can't keep it away from them. It's, it's there too, for sure. Sarah, then David, and then uh, we'll close. And I want to say that Deb said in the chat that she feels like this is a an invitation to a gratitude practice, right? To stay grateful for what we do have and the things that we, we do experience as, as pleasurable. Sarah, then David. I think that including this is a statement of inclusivity and um, acceptance of imperfection and troubles and illness and everything that's negative in life that most almost every single person has at some time. And I take it as a vote for the positive side, overpowering that and inviting you in. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. David? Amy, thanks. Uh, It's all been said. I'm not going to add anything to it, but I appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Love that. Um, One thing I'm sort of curious about, I noticed like there's 39 people attending today. Isn't it possible when we make these decisions thousands of years ago, there's a political aspect to people sitting around a table saying, you know, maybe we need our local pessimist who's an influential guy in this community, see what he has to add. And they just compromise and put this kind of stuff in just because For sure. we're a community. For know? sure. For sure. Somebody won the argument that day at that somebody meeting. Somebody won the argument, right. Yeah, right. Somebody yeah. won the argument at that meeting and somebody was missing from that meeting. Right. And whatever. That's exactly how it always happens. I agree. Yes. 
the optimist was probably out fishing. Out fishing and enjoying life. And because yeah. of that, Kohelet is now part of our Bible. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, uh, Alexandra, did you want to say something? Hi, Rabbi Amy. Um, I, I'm more, I'm a little curious about maybe it's the lens in which we view what's positive and what's negative as well. And I'm coming late to the discussion, so I apologize for that. But because I think I've really been conditioned to think of things that the negative things as negative and often those things, the, those are their opportunities. And I'm not saying that like sickness and struggle and suffering are necessarily opportunities, but they certainly invite a lot of introspection and perspective taking. And often what we view as negative ends up being something that is life-changing or an opening. Okay. You, that is way more positive than Kohelet. <laughs> like you you, yes, to everything you just said, 100%. That ain't Kohelet, right? So go back and read Kohelet and then tell me if you still think that's what Kohelet's saying. Because you can argue that, but I don't see it. Like, I think Kohelet's saying, eat your lunch because you're going to die. Eat your lunch. <laughs> Enjoy your lunch. I, I, and I see that too. You know, I just, I'm just, I was more responding to what Sarah was saying about like this sort of binary of, and, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think in this way often binary thinking, which, which is like this positive or negative. And yeah, maybe it is just like chuck that all out and yes, just live, live my life. But uh, I do often think like when I'm in those moments of negativity, shall we say, or whatever the struggle that, um, it's because I've been conditioned to view it that way. I don't know. It's just a, an aside, but yes, I you're would, probably right. Not relevant to text. Okay, I'll move it on. To continue this conversation. Okay. Um, I think it's a great conversation. Don't get me wrong. Um, it's 11.07, so I'm going to have to let you all go. Um, but I, um, I, I mean, I think that's a valid conversation. And so, right, right. What's positive? What's negative? Aren't those labels we just use? And all of that. All right. So um, in the Sukkah, a house that is open to the world, a house that freely acknowledges that it cannot be the basis of our security, we let go of the need for that sense of security. The illusion of protection falls away and suddenly we are flush with our life, feeling our life, following our life, doing its dance one step after another. Rabbi Alan Liu from This Is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared, uh, writing about Sukkot. Um, so thank you all for your time and attention and your engagement. Now you know about Ecclesiastes. Um, maybe someday we'll do the prophets. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org